our way through this wonderful epistle letter from the Apostle Paul to the Roman Church. And it is his letter explaining in detail the gospel. The wonderful gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. The theme of the gospel is stated by him in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for this reason. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. In other words, it's the power of God for salvation. It brings about salvation from sin for those who believe. Jew and Greek, that was biblical way of saying for anyone. Because you were in, in that day, you were either a Jew or you were a, a Greek. You were a Gentile. And it comes through faith. He says, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Just as is written, the just or the righteous will live by faith. So how do we get this salvation, this powerful deliverance? Well, through faith. And when he says that it's uh, the righteousness of God being revealed, he means how to have a right relationship with God. It comes through faith. That's the only way that you can receive it. How do you get the righteousness of God or the righteousness of Christ on your account instead of having all the weight of your sin and your guilt against you? You you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has done. That's the theme of the letter. And then he breaks it down throughout the letter into several sections explaining that. And he starts out with this big section going from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20. that could be summed up in one word. It's because we are condemned. Condemnation is what belongs to people because they are sinners. And God's wrath is being revealed against it. We saw that in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Now, it will be, but is presently. It will be in a coming day as well, but it is presently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness are suppressing the truth, the truth about God that he's revealed to man through his creation. So they're condemned because they uh, restrain and reject and resist God's uh, glorious resurrection, I mean, uh, manifestation of himself through his creation. And he goes on to say that they turn to idols. We, see, we saw the origin of idolatry in verses 21 through 23, where they, they turn from believing or acknowledging the immortal God for the lie. The lie is that there's not a God that I will give an account to. There's not a God who created everything that I will give an account to for my life, for my sin. And they create gods of their imagination rather than the God of revelation. And they worship and serve images created like man or by other creatures, birds and beasts and crawling things, that kind of thing. Terrible. So we go from the suppression of the truth to actual idolatry and from idolatry Paul goes into this metaphor that I've given in in verse 24 through the end of the chapter that three strikes and you're out there's three repeated statements in verse 24 God gave them over verse 26 God gave them over verse 28 God gave them over strike one was verse 24 God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 
And it's, it's, it's stated why he did that, because they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. So this God giving them over is actually part of his wrath. It's not why his wrath is given. It is part of his wrath being given. Delivering people over to the lusts that are in their heart, the strong desires that are in the core of their being, he says, probably most likely a reference to sexual immorality most of all. But it is to impurity rather than purity, to the dishonoring of their bodies instead of honoring the bodies that God meant to bring him glory. Strike one. God gave them over to the lust of their heart. Strike two is where we're picking up from last week. That was a pretty quick review, wasn't it? (laughs) Strike two, verse 26. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Notice that it says, for this reason, at the beginning of verse 26. In other words, because they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. This is, this is a cycle that's going down and down and down. It's kind of like your toilet. It's circling down and down and down and, you know, down the drain into hellish life. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And and the dishonorable passions are clearly defined in these two verses, 26 and 27. So let me read those verses. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women, it would be better translated, their females exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And their males, would be the better translation, because he's trying to distinguish between males and females, not the word for mankind that he oftentimes uses, or even wives that he oftentimes uses. So their males likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. So in these two verses... Paul uh, gives the clearest and most detailed teaching in the New Testament on lesbianism and homosexuality. I mean, in these two verses, Paul describes the practice as dishonorable, as unnatural, as uh, a perversion, and as shameful. I mean, such People, he says, abandon the honorableness of a heterosexual marriage relationship for same-sex relations. That's what he's talking about. They abandon the, the natural relations for that which is against nature, or outside of nature, or contrary to nature, which would mean that it's a perversion. Right? It's a perversion, uh, which is natural versus what is unnatural. That makes it a perversion. And then lastly, they abandoned what was admirable, uh, sexual relationships within marriage for that which was shameful, he says. Now, it's interesting, the Greco-Roman society of Paul's day tolerated such sinful behavior with ease. 
some advocates suggest it was viewed as superior behavior to heterosexuality. Barclay, a commentator, notes that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. And this, of course, is where our society falls along the same lines as that early Greco-Roman society. It views it much the same way. We've gone from, you don't talk about that, that's very shameful, sinful, unnatural, dishonorable behavior, to, well, maybe it's not all that, but you, you, know, it, you shouldn't talk about it, you shouldn't make it known to, now you are praised if you come out, you know, make it clear that this is what you are to now. Uh, you have to agree that it is good and right. As long as it's done in love, just like a man and woman does it in love, it's, it's all good. It's all, and you have to agree with me, otherwise you're bad. Well, in contrast to that way of thinking, the Old Testament uh, specifically prohibits homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So there's another word that you could add to it. It's dishonorable, it's unnatural, it's a perversion, it's shameful, and it is an abomination. Leviticus 20 verse 13 says very similar, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination and they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So not only does it, it's called an abomination, but in the Old Testament it was like, you die because of it. You're taken out in stone. You're put to death if you engage in that kind of behavior. And that, those aren't the only two verses in the Old Testament that talk about it, but those are two very clear ones. Then you come to the New Testament, and it's likewise viewed the same way, not only in our passage in Romans, but in 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, 9 through 11, Paul specifically states that those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what he says in 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So that's like all the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? Then he begins to break it down into like groups that are unrighteous. And he says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's a whole lot of people not inheriting the kingdom of God. All the unrighteous, right? That's what he's saying. And within that group of unrighteous are those that commit homosexual behavior. And that would, uh, of course, include lesbian behavior as well. And then he says in verse 11, a wonderful thing. And such were some of you. He's talking to those in Corinth, those who had turned to Christ. You used to be in that group of unrighteous people. But the point is, you're not anymore. Why? And he says it, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, you are no longer, if you are a believer, 
is you're not going to continue to engage in all of those unrighteous behaviors. Not just homosexuality, right? Adultery and sexual immorality and lying and thieving and reviling and all of those. God changes our lives. He does. The Spirit of God indwells us and we don't think the same way. We don't have the same desires that we used to. All those desires that have been being described in Romans 1, he changes us. So it is interesting with this background, it's really difficult for someone like myself to understand how some contemporary teachers and preachers, uh, even those who claim to be, you know, very biblical Christians, make allowance for this kind of sinful behavior. And it's clearly... It's clearly condemned in both the Old and the New Testament. And they try to play word games like, well, you've got to look at the words, does it really mean homosexual? Or, well, it's okay as long as it's truly loving, monogamous relationship. No, those aren't the words that are used. The words that are used are absolutely clear, just like God is there was clear in creation. His words about this are clear as well. The scripture makes it clear that lesbianism and homosexuality can't be understood as an alternative lifestyle that is somehow acceptable to God. But rather, it is seen as a sign of one of the forms of God's wrath. One of the forms that his wrath takes when people have restrained the truth and resisted and rejected him, have fallen into idolatry. Such lifestyles are to be understood as a judgment of God, not the reason for the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul does not call on God to punish them. Rather, he has the profound thought that their immersion in the sin itself is God's wrath being poured out on them. And he ends that by saying, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. That is God's due penalty toward them, giving them over to what is in their heart that then they act out in this perversion of life. Now, if we're in Canada right now, and I preached what I just said, I could be arrested and thrown in prison for five years. That could be coming here. That could be coming here. And I want you to know, it'll still be preached here. Because it's the truth. It's God's word. We're not going to change based on what the culture or the, the people in power say. God's word it will not be bound. It will not be bound. That's strike two. Strike three. Verse 28 says, God gave them over to a debased mind. Some of your translations might have a depraved mind. Let's read that verse uh, by itself. Uh, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, third time it's it's said, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It's interesting uh, with translations that I, now I'm not a, not a Greek linguist guy. I know Greek and I study Greek in the New Testament and, and so on. And sometimes I go, 
why did these people translate this way? If they would just translate what is said, it would catch people's attention all the quicker. A, a more literal translation, there's a play on words here. So a more literal translation of that would be that just as they did not see fit to approve God in their knowledge, God gave them up to an unapproved mind. Get that? They didn't approve God in their knowledge, so God gave them over to an unapproved mind. Their rejection of God led to an inability for them to actually think well. That's part of God's wrath being poured on, on them. The truth of God's revelation being rejected leaves a mark on people is what he's saying. A person's ability to think clearly about moral issues is undermined. And I'm sure that as you pay attention to news and what's said and what's going on in the world, how many times you think, what is wrong with these people? How could they say that? How could they think that way, right? I know that you do. And this is explaining that. They can think that way because God has given them over to a debased mind, a depraved mind. They have lost the ability to think clearly about moral issues in particular. So the unapproved or debased mind is one which is no longer able to discern between good and evil, between what is right and wrong. It is a mind that calls good evil and evil good. Hmm. And that's being done all the time in our society, whether it's sexual issues or abortion issues or, you know, it just goes on and on and on. The debased mind is capable, Paul says, of doing all kinds of things that are not proper for a person to do. That would be a, the way I would translate that phrase, ought not to be done, that are not proper to be done are not lawful to be done, lawful in the sense of God's law. Secular education, secular society, rules out God's involvement in human history. Well, they rule out the true God's involvement in human history. And, and it, it's deeply flawed from there on because it seeks to understand the whole without an acknowledgement of the most important or significant part, God, the true God, that we give an account to him. And so in 29 through 31, Paul just goes through a, a long, extensive list of the kinds of things that their debased minds, that can no longer distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil, so on and so forth, the kinds of things that they will do without any sense of guilt, Right? No sense of guilt about it. Well, let me just read it. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I mean, a more depressing list of sins would be difficult to come up with, although uh, Brad talked about 
a four-page list that he came up with for himself, but this is not four pages, but it's quite a lengthy list of the kinds of sins that they were engaging in, and they just didn't have a sense of guilt. Those that turn from the light of God ultimately follow a, a trail down and down and down into moral darkness. Verse 32. By the way, I, I'm not going to break down every one of those words and say, well, this word means this and this word. It would be worth your study at some time to, to do that. But the translations kind of put it out there. They're not bad translations. You don't have to be really brilliant to understand deceit and murder and strife and all of those things. So this, this is what they engage in without any conflict in their soul. So verse 32, it's not only the concluding verse in Paul's indictment against those who he's been describing, these pagan idolaters. It also shows the conspiracy of the creatures against the creator. It's conspiracy going on where the creatures are rebelling against the creator. Paul says that these people know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Now, you read that. How does that track with they no longer can discern right from wrong, good and evil, and so on? Well, this does not mean that they actually feel bad about their sins or that they even feel like they are wrong for committing their sins. That's not what he's talking about when he says they know the righteous decree. Their knowledge of God's decree against their activities is a result of God writing on human hearts his moral law. Look at Romans chapter 2 real quick and verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secret Secrets of Men's Heart by Jesus Christ. God has written his law, his moral law, on every human heart. And that's all that is meant there. They should know it. They've actually turned from it. They resisted the truth of God seen in creation. They rebelled against that. They moved into idolatry. And from idolatry, they they were given over to their lusts of their hearts and their deepest, darkest passions and their depraved or debased minds, and consequently, the thought of the righteous decree is no longer even in their thinking. If they'd stop and think about it, maybe they would agree, but they don't even stop and think about it. In fact, what they do is they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So willful rejection of divine revelation, it actually hardens the heart. And it dulls the thought life so much that the rebel not only takes delight in what he's doing, but takes even more delight when others join him in his doing. Murray sums it up well. He says, to put it bluntly, we are not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in the doing of those things that we know have their issue in damnation. We hate others as we hate ourselves and render, therefore, to them the approval of what we know merits 
damnation. Iniquity is most aggravated when it meets with no inhibition from the disapproval of others and when there is collective approbation. You know, it feels better when other people are doing it. You just don't worry about, is it right or wrong? It must be okay. Everyone else is doing it. How many times has kids said that to their parents? And that's what the society who's turned from God is saying as well. So, in conclusion to this section where Paul's uh, addressing these pagan and moral unbelievers that are representative of any who have turned from the revelation of God made known first in creation, but even more so in his word and through his son. You know, what happens is that bad theology ends up leading to bad morality. That's just the truth of it. And it will be judged by the God of wrath. So what is the solution to this problem? I mean, what is? I mean, such evil conditions can't actually be corrected by being denounced from the pulpit. It would be great if a preacher standing up and saying this. It would affect the whole society, but it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't, doesn't even affect the people in the church. Or you parents, you could tell your kids this all day long, and it may or may not affect them. It's not the solution. It's important to do. God may use such preaching and teaching to bring about conviction, but these evils can be corrected only through conversion. Conversion that comes about as a result of repentance towards sin and faith in Jesus Christ. God doesn't desire, he doesn't desire to pour out his wrath on people. In Ezekiel, Old Testament, where you think God is like this God of fire and brimstone and wrath pouring out, he loves to do that, so he's so quick to do it. Ezekiel, God said, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but that they would repent. And the heart of God is the same in the New Testament. He takes no delight in exercising his judgment upon the wicked. Rather, he calls people to repent and believe. And he graciously offers something in his place, the gift of deliverance from his wrath. I mean, he already has paid for the wrath that we deserve by pouring it out on his son. But the gift of forgiveness and eternal life is given only to those who call upon the name of the Lord. Meaning they believe in in what he's done, that he bore their sin in his body as he hung on the tree, that they believe that he has the power to forgive because he is God himself and he paid for their sin. And he rose from the dead to secure salvation for anyone who will trust in him. Praise his holy name. Amen? Amen. Praise his holy name. So Paul kind of throws a hammer down on the pagan and moral idolaters, doesn't he? Why? Because he wants them to know that they stand condemned before God and the only way that they can be forgiven is to believe in, in Jesus. The gospel has the power to save them like it has the power to save others. From that, he moves to God's wrath being revealed against the self-righteous. That's the backside of your insert that I put in for today. So let's, let's connect the dots in, in a sense. 
Paul's just finished with his declaration of God's wrath, you know, against the idolatrous Gentiles who restrained and rejected and replaced his revelation of himself in creation. And God turned them over uh, to their own desires and actions as part of his wrath being poured out on them. And they continue in that downward cycle of degeneration and degradation until they no longer have the, even the capacity to discern good from evil and even seek to involve others in their wicked attitudes and, and behaviors. But clearly that description doesn't fit everyone, does it? It, it doesn't. There are those who are moral people, at least moral in the eyes of others. In fact, you've probably been talking to someone and they say, well, I, you know, I was talking to these people, I have neighbors or part of my family. I don't think they're Christian, but they're really good people, right? right. That, they may be part of that cult, but they're really good people. And that's, you know, measuring by the wrong standard, right? I, I think we get that. But Paul says even good, moral people deserve the wrath of God. They too need to be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So in chapter 2 and part of chapter 3, Paul is going to deal specifically with self-righteous people. Self-righteous people who not only think that the pagan idolaters deserve God's wrath, but they believe that they will escape God's wrath. They think, well, it's certainly it's not going to come against me. I'm nothing like them. So in the first part of this kind of large unit, it, it, uh, Paul's, Paul is going to clarify God's principles of judgment. That's going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And by the way, even though I have that on your insert, we're not going through 16 verses. Yeah, that's not happening today. We're just getting our feet wet, so to speak, in this section. But that's what he does in the first 16 verses. Here's the principles of God's judgment. And then in the next section, he's going to demonstrate that religious activity doesn't actually equate with salvation. It doesn't equate with having a right relationship with God. And that's verses 17 through 29. And then in the last section of, the, of this flow of thought, he points out that though the Jews had certain advantages, it didn't relieve them of their guilt before God. That's going to be chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So it's kind of a flow of thought, just like we saw it in chapter 1 with the pagan Gentiles. So there's a flow of thought regarding these self-righteous people. So we're going to just begin to go through the principles of God's judgments in verses 1 through 16. And, and to me, it seems evident that Paul is referring to Jewish people here. If you'll look at verse 17 with me, you'll see that it says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and then he carries on with it, but... It, Evident that, in, at least in verse 17, he's talking about Jewish people, right? And that, that was a conflict that existed in the church a long, long time. And by the way, it actually still does between Jews and Gentiles. In the early church, there was, like, there was this thing going on. It's like the Jews felt like 
they were better than the Gentile believers, and Gentile believers like, yeah, but you were cut off because of your unbelief, and we were grafted on, so we're better, and that kind of conflict was going on. Paul's addressing that even as he speaks about this. It'll get more clear when we get to chapters 9, 10, 11. But I think, you know, that he's still talking about Jews through this entire section. Not, not you know, the morally superior Gentiles, the better Gentiles, the more moral Gentiles. And the reason for believing that is this. Number one, the, the way in which the Jew is mentioned in verse 17 it doesn't suggest that Paul is suddenly shifting from one group to another group, does he? I mean, look at it again. But if you call yourself a Jew, it's like he's carrying on his conversation from what he's just said. That's verses 1 through 16. And secondly, the, the propensity of Jews to judge Gentiles for their religious and moral perversity was absolutely specific, a specific characteristic of of the Jews. They saw the Gentiles as just deserving of God's judgment, nothing else. And then third, the language of the passage suggests, you know, the, the probability that Paul's thinking in terms of the special privileges of Israel and the extraordinary patience of God toward them. Uh, even though they were his chosen people, they were unfaithful and they were stubborn. Now, you've got to read from chapter 2 through chapter 3 and verse 8 to get that flow of thought, but I'm going to ask you to do that on your own. I'm not going to take up the time to read all of that, but I am going to read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because... You, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So it is, I believe in particular, that Paul is talking about the self-righteous Jew in, in this section. But let me throw this at you. The truth is, any self-righteous person fits into the description that Paul is uh, describing in this text. It's not only self-righteous Jews who feel they hold a superior position before God compared to pagan Gentile idolaters. I mean, the same can be said of self-righteous Christians, right? Self-righteous Christians who compare themselves to all the unrighteous unbelievers around them in society. I mean, they not may not, not aren't Jews, but they are just like the people described, in that they see themselves as being in a better position, if you will, than others, because, you know, they go to church. They own a Bible. They might even read it every now and then. And, you know, they, they live a pretty moral lifestyle compared to everyone else. They must be in better shape. But what Paul says in this portion of his argument implies... Uh, 
you know, something very different. Every self-righteous person remains under the wrath of God for their sin. That's the, kind of the gist of it. Now here's a phrase that you're going to recognize. Innocent until proven guilty, right? Innocent until proven guilty. And, th- and that should be a very familiar uh, statement to all of us who live in the United States. I mean, there are several foundational precepts to our judicial system when it comes particularly to the matter of jurisprudence in criminal cases. I mean, we have the right of being considered innocent of a crime until there is evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that, you know, we are guilty. It is our guilt and not our innocence that has to be proven, right? Our guilt has to be proven, not our innocence. When one is brought to trial to be judged either by a judge or a group of one's peer, he has a right to face his accusers and, and, their, and question them and their evidence. We have the right to have witnesses present on our behalf. We have the right to either testify on our own behalf or not to testify. We have the right to a speedy trial. That seems to be one of those that's kind of gotten lost. But a speedy trial. The right of an appeal. The right to legal counsel. You know, one who will stand as your advocate. And there are others, I'm sure, that I'm missing. But the point that I'm making is that we have a very well-defined system of justice upon which the guilt or the innocence of a person can be determined. The judgment of a person in our society receives... You know, it's based on those clear principles of justice, right? And we know that that system is faulty at times. We know that innocent people have been convicted of crimes that they didn't commit. We know that guilty people have gotten off uh, on a technicality, even though they did the crime. We, We know that it's not a perfect system because imperfect people are involved in that system, right? We know that. And sometimes that can be frustrating. You hear about it all the time in the news, about the people that, you know, the person that's getting, he's convicted and then given a sentence, he thinks, man, man, I won't won't get out of prison until I'm an old man. The other person's like, you ought to be in prison until you die. You know, it's just, it's, it's imperfect people. But we'll see in this text that God also has a system for making his divine judgments, pouring out his wrath. And in this passage, 2, 1 through 16, we'll discover that God uses three distinct principles in making judgments about the guilt or innocence of people. So I'm going to give them to you. You can fill in uh, your, your blanks there if you'd like, and then just fill in notes as we kind of walk through it together as you so choose. So the first of these is that God judges, or God's judgment is according to truth. It's according to truth. That's going to be seen in verses 2 through 5. Second, he judges according to deeds. And we're going to have to address, as that fit with, you know, we're saved by faith, by grace through faith, not of deeds or works. We'll talk about that, but he judges according to deeds. 6 through 10. And then thirdly, we'll see that he judges impartially. Impartially. That's verses 11 through 16. 
And then there's one final thing that I need to point out before we begin to break this passage down. And that is what Paul's doing in this passage. He's using a literary style called diatribe. It's like, wow, diatribe. Yeah, it's still used today, by the way. So a, a diatribe was a popular style developed in that day by philosophical teachers and preachers. It is where the teacher or the philosopher would use what could be called a straw man, you know, an imaginary person, to make his case. So he imagines an objector standing before him, listening to all of his arguments, and then he responds to the arguments and totally demolishes those arguments. That's what Paul's doing in this section. He's using the style of diatribe. And you pick it up right from the get-go when he says, Oh, man. Who are you? Oh, man. It's this person that represents a group of people who are self-righteous, but it's a straw man. So, principle number one, God judges according to truth. Paul introduces the straw man who represents the self-righteous Jew, and I'd say could represent any self-righteous person, with these words. Therefore, you have no excuse. I would translate it, you are without excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So the implication of this denunciation of this straw man is that he fully endorses Paul's condemnation, right, of the pagan idolaters in chapter 1. The ones that he's just lowered, you know, the hammer on. Paul just said how terrible it was that these pagan Gentiles not only did debased things, but they heartily approved of anyone who would join them in such behavior. And the, and the Jewish man would quite naturally think he's doing a good thing by you know, pouring it on them. He would agree with Paul's description of them revealing, you know, God revealing his wrath against those evildoers. They were in complete agreement. Paul's brilliant here because he's bringing the man into his argument, the straw man. You'd agree with me, wouldn't you, that God is right and just in judging that kind of person? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You need to hammer him, Paul. Lay it on him. Give him both barrels. But to his surprise, the apostle says, you are without excuse. <laughs> You have no excuse. By the way, that is the exact same phrase used of the pagan Gentile idolaters in chapter 1 and verse 20. They are without excuse. And you, O oh righteous, self-righteous man, he says, are without excuse as well. Just as the pagans who rejected the truth of God for the lie were without excuse, so is this man and anyone like him. And the reason he has no excuse is because he was condemning himself since he practiced the same things. That's the next thing Paul says, right? For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So when the straw man pointed his finger of judgment at the pagan idolater. What was he doing? He was pointing his finger at himself. And, and you know, the ESV has, uh, you practice the very same things. The word very is not actually in there. You practice the same things. 
Paul is not meaning that they had the same exact debased passions and mind and behaviors described at the end of chapter 1. He doesn't mean that they did exactly the same thing. What he means is the essence of the same sin was in them. It was in them. For example, the, the, the Gentiles were idolaters, right? That's what he said. But the Jew, by means of his self-righteousness, was equally making an idol of himself. Or, or the Gentile refused to repent, right? They resisted and suppressed the truth, would not repent. But the history of the Jews is full. It's full of their failure to repent when God would send them a message and say, repent or perish. Jesus said the same thing. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. It's interesting. It's true psychologically that people tend to criticize others, uh, and negative traits in others, which they themselves have in them. What do you mean? Well, psychologists actually refer to this as projection, right? Projection. You project your own faults, your own way of thinking, your own misdeeds onto others. So the angry person delights in pointing out to others how easily this person over here loses his temper. It's the angry one that will point that out. The covetous person likes to point the finger at others who so obviously are fond of all the things that they've acquired and accumulated in life. Why? Because they covet those things. The critical person. You know, anyone know a critical person? I don't mean critical in a good sense. I mean critical in a bad sense, right? You, I, yeah, obviously we all know critical people. Well, the critical person is quick to point the finger at those who have nothing good to say about others. It's just true. That's the way it works. And Paul's saying that essentially that is what's going on. You Jews, you self-righteous Jews, you're pointing the finger at those people. It's like, bad, bad, bad. You deserve God's wrath. The truth is you've got the bad, bad, bad in you. And you're judging yourself when you condemn them because you're just as bad. In verses 2 and 3, Paul says, he begins with, we know. You notice how he's bringing the straw man into his argument? We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. That's right, Paul. I didn't like what you just said, but I, I agree with that. The righteous judgment of God, you know, falls on those who practice such things. And with that statement, he would have established a point of agreement with the Jewish straw man. He's brilliant. Paul's brilliant. You agree with me on that, don't you? Absolutely. Speak on, a wise one. <laughs> Both would agree, you know, about God's judgment rightly falling on the pagan unbelievers of chapter 1. But then comes the catch. In Paul's argument, the Jews were guilty of the same things. Didn't he just say that? Yeah, he says it again. He says it again. You practice the same things. So in this verse we actually see the first of these three principles that I talked about regarding God's judgment. And it comes in a more literal translation of the verse. The ESV has, and most translations have something like this. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. 
but a more literal rendering would be the judgment of God is according to truth. The judgment of God is according to truth. So this isn't a, a reference to the truth of the gospel, and it's not a reference to the truth of scripture in general, you know, that the scriptures are true, but that God's judgments are based on facts. But he knows to be true. His judgments of people is not founded on the appearance of things, not on the pretensions of people, not on, you know, what they show to others, but rather what God knows is the reality of things going on in their life. God's judgment is according to truth. We often base our judgments upon our own preferences, don't we? Uh, I mean, a simple example is like, I really don't prefer avocados, so don't give me one. <laughs> I have my preferences about such things. I, like, that's my judgment. Avocados are bad, bad, bad. <laughs> you might think they're good. We just have to agree to disagree on that. But we base our judgments on our own preferences or upon what others will tell us. Uh, you know, we pay attention to the news and we think that they're telling us Absolutely, what's true? Well, unless you're a conservative, you know that the, the left isn't telling you the truth. Or if you're a leftist, you know that the right isn't telling you the truth. But we do pay attention to what other people tell us. And we're going to accept what they say as being true to some degree. Or, or we make our judgment based on our perception. Our perception of what's going on what's really, you know, taking place. It's, it's our perception is what matters. By the way, all of those things can be far from the reality of things. Our preferences, what other people say, or our perceptions. Uh, I, I tell you, as a pastor, I've had many opportunities to try to help people dealing with conflict. Sometimes that conflicts with me, by the way. So it's not been uncommon to hear two different accounts of something that has occurred. You know, it's like, well, this person says, this is what happened. This is what he said. No, actually, this is what happened, and this is what I actually said. It's like, uh, they're in disagreement. Both can't be factual, right? They, it's not possible. Both could be wrong, but only one could actually be factual if they are in disagreement with one another. So when you talk about that being that truth, you know, that they can't both be right, it often comes down to what one person perceived to be the intention of the other person. Well, my perception was, you know, as though the person's perception was all that mattered, regardless of what had really happened or what was really said. And, and people often come across that way. It's like, well, what I perceived is this. My perception was this, like that's the truth. It could be totally a lie. It could be totally untrue. But you can't convince them of that because it's their perception. Whew. I'm glad God's judgments aren't based upon personal preferences or what other people tell him or our perception of things. No, he is never fooled by anyone. And since he is all-knowing, 
<laughs> he always has all the facts, doesn't he? He has all the facts. Just give me the facts, ma'am. Some of you old people recognize dragnet talk there. Just give me the facts, ma'am. All that really matters is what is true, right? And the point Paul is making is that in the final analysis, human judgments, whether about ourselves or about other people, like the straw man was making, it, it, it just doesn't count. It does not count. I wouldn't say it doesn't matter because it matters to them, obviously, personally, preferentially, and all of that, but it doesn't count before God. God's judgments, on the other hand, are inescapable because they are always based on the reality of things. So Paul follows up. He follows up this principle of God's judgment of people with a, another question. He says, do you suppose, O oh man, straw man, right? O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Huh. The, the, the Apostle Paul knows that the Jew would actually believe that he would escape the judgment of God because he was of the chosen people and because he had the law. And he thought of himself as being very moral, a really good person compared to all those other pagan Gentile idolaters. But literally, the first phrase of this question is not, do you suppose, but do you consider this, old man? Are you really thinking about this? That's the idea. It's not like, what do you suppose? Well, I suppose that if you hide avocado in a salad with enough stuff, I might not. No, no. It's not, no. It's not a suppose. It's a thinking, considering, accounting something, a reckoning of it. Do you consider this? Do you reckon this, old man? So what he's calling on the straw man to do is seriously ponder the predicament that he is in. Paul's question brings to memory an account in the Old Testament that I'm sure all of you are familiar with. Uh, You should be. Even if you haven't read through your Old Testament, I'm sure you've heard this story before. It's a story about David, King David, and Nathan. And how Nathan comes to David and confronts him. The Lord sends him to David to confront him about some sin. And, and Nathan starts off with the story. Hey, David, tell me what you think. There was this really rich guy, and he had all these flocks, and, you know, boo-coo sheep, And there was this really poor guy, and he had one pet lamb. And the really rich guy thought, well, I don't want to take any of my sheep. I'm just going to take the sheep, the pet sheep of the poor man. What do you think should happen to him? Oh, 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 David gets furious. He ought to be put to death. Off with his head. You know, that kind of idea. And, uh, hmm. Then Nathan begins to explain that David was the rich man. He had stolen the lamb, Bathsheba, from the poor man, Uriah. David agreed that the rich man who killed the poor man's lamb deserved to die, but having passed judgment on that man in the story, he was passing judgment on himself. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. He quickly learned that from Nathan. Well, God's judgment, then, is based on truth. 
It doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're a king or a commoner, or whether you're religious or irreligious. God's judgments are based on what is true. Not on what may be hid from the eyes of others, because that which is hid from others is known by him who sees all, and his judgment makes no distinction between people groups. You may think that, you know, uh, you have an advantage over those who don't believe in God. And you probably know many people like that. Or those who live a very immoral lifestyle. You probably know lots of people like that. You may enjoy pointing the proverbial finger at those people who live in such a way. But the truth is, you may be committing the same sins that they are committing. Oh, no, 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 I'm not doing those things. Hmm. Jesus kind of talked about sins that are outward and sins that are inward, right? They're the same. You can say, well, no, I would never, I would never you know, commit those sexual sins. But if you lust in your heart for another person who's not your spouse, you're doing it. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not greedy like those, those people. I'm not a covetous person. But really, when you see someone else gets a new phone, and you go, oh, man, I really want that new phone, too or it could be a new car, or whatever it is. You get the point. I mean, you may think you have an advantage, but do you really? Are you perhaps committing the same sins? They're in your heart and in your attitudes. They're not outward, but in God's eyes, they're the same. And that's Paul's point in making, that he's making concerning the self-righteous person. God knows what is true about everyone. Everyone. And his judgments will be ter- determined by truth. Well, we're not even going to get through this point. But I think God has hit us with this point. We'll finish it off next week. I'm glad. (laughs) I'm glad for the gospel. Are you? That God is able to save terribly, terribly wicked, immoral people. And that he's able to save terribly, terribly self-righteous, judgmental people. And we were one or the other. Maybe we were both at times in our life. But God is able to save people like that through the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to those that will believe. Have you believed? If you have, rejoice in the gospel. As we go through this, it's like, wow, this is really downer stuff. Talking about judgment and wrath and all of that. For the believer, it's like, thank God I'm not facing his wrath. He's delivered me forever and ever. And God, help me to tell others about your wrath and the gospel that can deliver them from it. Lord, we praise you. We praise you for who you are. In character, and we praise you for who you are and what you've done for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We give you praise and honor and glory. We're thankful for this time of worship that we've enjoyed and for the food that we're going to eat on the other side as we share a meal. We thank you for that too. You're so good in providing for us all that we need. So praise your holy name. Amen.